On June 2nd, 1886, in a quiet ceremony held in the Blue Room of the White House, Buffalo's Francis Folsom married President Grover Cleveland. Few were in attendance, but the event and the First Lady garnered attention the world over. For she, only 21, and he, 49, made for a scandalous story, one which began in our own backyard. This past week marked the 135th anniversary of the unique ceremony, the first in which President would marry in the White House, and one which would make Frances the youngest First Lady in history. Frances Clara Folsom, or Frankie, was born in 1864 to Oscar and Emma Folsom, Oscar was a prominent lawyer in Buffalo, partnering in a practice with his longtime friend and future U.S. President Grover Cleveland. In 1875, when Frances was only 11 years old, her father was killed in a carriage accident on Niagara Street. While driving back from Grand Island with his friend Warren Miller, Folsom's buggy collided with a farmer's wagon. The impact of the collision threw Folsom over the carriage and into the street below. The 38-year-old lawyer was declared dead hours later, and the incident shocked and horrified Buffalo society. Now, having died without a will, Cleveland was appointed executor of the estate and worked to put his friend's financial affairs in order, affairs which he found to be in terrible disarray. Now, Cleveland was not Frankie's legal guardian, as is often reported to be the case. However, he had been close with the family from the time that Frances was young. He had even bought Frankie her first baby carriage. Frankie attended Buffalo Central School and, after the death of her father, stayed for a time with relatives in Ransomville. She later lived with her grandmother in Medina, New York, where she attended high school before going on to study at Wells College. Located in Aurora, New York, Wells was one of the first women's liberal arts colleges in the nation. There, she studied a variety of subjects, including botany, logic, and political studies. The successful completion of her degree actually made her the first ever college-educated first lady. Since she was young, Frankie had been known for her beauty. In 1879, at the age of only 15, she participated at Buffalo's Authors' Carnival held at the Pearl Street Rink, what papers called one of the most brilliant and resplendent affairs of its kind, of which the citizens of the city have any recollection. At the event, young Frankie was an attendant at the Robert Burns booth and wore the classic attire of a Highlands lassie with a plaid dress and all the accessories. The April 18, 1886 edition of the Decatur Morning Herald carried the story, 
printing that, quote, her rare beauty and amiability made her a tremendous favorite with everybody and in a center of beauty in which all the bells participated, Miss Folsom was the first prize winner. About 15,000 ballots were cast in this competition and this fatherless beauty had a large plurality, her vote nearly equaling that of all the other beauties put together. Despite the age difference, her beauty did not go unnoticed by Grover Cleveland, who in 1884 had been elected the 22nd president of the United States. While Frances had been away at college, correspondences between her and Cleveland had turned romantic. Folsom's uncle, H.F. Harmon, a well-known Boston flower merchant, shed a bit more light on the situation in an interview with the Yonkers statesman on May 4th, 1886. He stated that, quote, it was around 1883 when the attention that Cleveland gave to Folsom became a bit more serious. In 1885, she and her mother had visited the White House and rumors of the engagement began. He added, Regarding her character and beauty, I think I may safely say that you can travel a good many miles and see a good many people before you find a young lady of greater beauty and accomplishments than Miss Folsom. She has a good common sense and is worthy of every position that she will occupy. Now, regarding the trip to Washington mentioned by her uncle, that happened in late March, 1885. As recorded in the Buffalo commercial on March 28th, quote, Mrs. Oscar Folsom and Miss Frances Folsom are to be the guests of Miss Rose Elizabeth Cleveland at the White House in early April. Rose Cleveland was the president's sister and for the time being, had acted as first lady. The hometown connection paired with Grover's long-standing friendship with the family served as a convenient cover for the visit. At least initially, no one thought too much of their presence in Washington. The Buffalo papers reported back on the positive impressions both Mrs. and Miss Folsom made on Washington society. Now, despite their best efforts to keep their relationship a secret, rumors had already begun to spread about the president's love life as early as 1884. On November 17th, Washington's Evening Star reported upon a number of rumors circulating through Western New York about an engagement between Cleveland and some unidentified Buffalo Bell. Given the Folsom's recent visit to DC and the age of the president, Many assumed that the Buffalo Bell was not Frances, but in fact, her mother, Emma. Other rumors speculated that the target of Cleveland's affections were either Mariah Love or Frances Folsom. Love, much older than the latter, established the Fitch Crush in 1881, the nation's first daycare center for children of working women. Though Love was more similar in age to Cleveland and a more traditional match, her friends denied the rumors. Cleveland's friends also denied any speculation that the president-elect would marry, declaring him a confirmed bachelor. Interestingly, Folsom's friends were a little more loose-lipped. They more or less acknowledged that the pair had at least an interest in each other. Some even hinted that a marriage might be a possibility in the near future. 
In June 1885, Francis graduated from Wells College, and shortly thereafter, Grover proposed, bringing some degree of truth to the already swirling rumors. The engagement was kept secret, however. Frankie and her mother would return to Washington in October before departing on a six-month-long tour of Europe. Both the president and the Folsom family believed a European tour would be beneficial for the future First Lady, though for different reasons. Cleveland wished her to experience the more rigid social customs of the Europeans and gain a familiarity with European society, in effect, providing her with the worldliness the position required. Her mother wished to ensure she had an adequate trousseau from the finest designers in Europe to enable her to fulfill her new social duties. Though the betrothed and their families went to great lengths to keep the engagement quiet, it's believed that the cat was let out of the bag by, of all people, a telegraph company employee. Before her departure to Europe in October of 1885, Cleveland sent a telegraph addressed to Folsom. The telegraph operator who was given the message was an avid collector of autographs, and upon realizing that this message was from the President of the United States, decided to keep the original paper. Now, his intentions weren't malicious, though he seems to have maybe been a bit naive. He genuinely intended to remove the signature from the message and add it to his collection. However, his wife and landlady to whom he showed the message took considerably more interest in its contents, which clearly indicated a romantic relationship. Though Cleveland and Folsom continued to deny any rumors, the media pounced and Frankie became their fixation. However, it wouldn't be until a full seven months later that the news was officially confirmed by the White House. The May 29th statement confirmed the relationship and announced that the nuptials between the president and Miss Folsom were scheduled for June 2nd of that year, as in four days later. It caused a sensation to say the least. Now, while Folsom was traveling back from Europe, a sudden loss in her family threatened to postpone the wedding. Her grandfather, John Bennett Folsom, had passed away on May 19, 1886. The loss had been unknown to the family until the ship was only 300 miles out from New York's harbor. Francis's cousin, Benjamin Folsom, who was traveling with Francis, had received a newspaper from a passing steamer, and upon opening it, he saw that his grandfather had passed but refrained from telling anyone else until the ship had reached port. And despite the somber news, the wedding was to proceed as planned. Rose Cleveland, along with the wives of several cabinet members, greeted the Folsoms as they disembarked from their ship. The, quote, bride-elect, as the papers were calling her, and her mother checked into Manhattan's Gilsey House Hotel, where they would stay for the next several days before returning to Washington. The day before the wedding, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle reported on the ceremony to come, stating that the wedding preparations at the White House were to be very simple. The invitations had been limited to the families of the parties and only 25 guests. Though well wishes poured in from around the country and the world for the couple through the mail. The only decorations in the blue room where they were to be wed would be the plants and flowers palms were to be placed along the walls and between the windows. Cut flowers would also be present, 
along with the Smilax, which would be entwined in the chandeliers. Only a small number of family members, along with the members of the cabinet and their wives, were expected to attend. The paper also reported on the wedding cake, quote, there will be one big wedding cake and 150 smaller ones. In the center will be a monogram, CF. The small cakes will be placed in oblong white satin boxes. On the half of one side of each cake box will be painted by hand the monogram, CF, and the date, June 2nd, 1886. Several thousands of applications from all over the country have been received for pieces of the cake. On the day of the wedding, papers lamented that Mr. Cleveland was now enjoying his last hours as a bachelor. Folsom and her guests arrived in Washington, D.C. from New York at approximately 5 a.m., and Francis was taken directly to the White House. The entire cabinet was going to be in attendance, save for Attorney General Garland, who, get this, years before had vowed to never array himself in the, quote, claw hammer coat that custom requires a gentleman to wear on such occasions. Papers reported that the wedding had made Garland a sad pickle. He felt he should attend, but that coat, though. Frances, who by this point had already earned a reputation for her style and beauty, managed to dazzle all those in attendance. Her gown, which she had custom-made in Paris, likely by the renowned Maison Worth, was constructed of satin, silk, and fine muslin. The skirt of heavy ivory satin was reported to be stiff enough to stand alone. The skirt was further stiffened with buckram at the hem and reinforced with a clever series of bone stays that when fastened created a birdcage bustle effect. The bodice, which was made of the same heavy satin fabric as the skirt, crossed from left to right and fastened at the hip. The three-quarter length sleeves reached just below her elbows and her tulle veil was more than six yards long. Following in the footsteps of Queen Victoria, whose gown came to define wedding fashion for the rest of the 19th century, Folsom's gown was decorated with orange blossoms, sewn along the cross seam of both the bodice and the skirt. At 7 p.m. on June 2nd, the wedding, which had stirred so much gossip and speculation throughout the country, finally began. The guests, limited number as they were, gathered along the eastern and western walls of the Blue Room. Among them was Buffalo's Wilson Bissell, Cleveland's close friend and former law partner. As the bride and groom descended the stairs, walking arm in arm toward the Blue Room, the Marine Band, led by John Philip Sousa, played Mendelssohn's Wedding March. They entered through the room's northern door and approached the center of the room where stood Reverend Dr. Byron Sunderland, who would preside over the ceremony. And beside him, ready to assist in the nuptials, was Reverend William Neal Cleveland, the president's older brother. As expected, the ceremony was simple and understated. A full chronicling of the service scarcely filled two columns of the next day's newspaper. After exchanging vows, Mrs. Folsom was the first to congratulate the newlyweds followed by the remaining family and friends. The guests socialized as they made their way through the mansion's green room and east rooms before retiring to the family dining room. The main table decorations in the dining room featured a full-rigged ship 
made from delphinians, roses, pansies, and other flowers. The ship rested on a mirror which represented a lake and was surrounded by a shore of selaginella and bits of coral. Guests presented the couple with gifts, but under the president's orders, the list was to be kept private. Cleveland's gift to his bride, however, was not. He presented Frankie with an elegant diamond necklace. Accounts state that the stones were set in gold and extended all around the neck. During supper, the first couple excused themselves as had been planned. They boarded a carriage which would take them to the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad crossing on K Street. There, a special train was waiting to take them the roughly 200 miles west to a cottage in Deer Park, Maryland, where they would spend the following week. As a small but interesting detail, before leaving the mansion, President Cleveland ordered that all the flowers in the house be cut and distributed throughout city hospitals. Now, what had started in the press as speculation and fascination with Frances soon became a full-blown love affair with the new First Lady, launching her into superstardom. According to an article in the Washington Post, she was an instant arbiter of fashion, though more conservative factions of the American populace critiqued her trends. First came her coif, lovely auburn hair swept up from the forehead, then gathered behind above her shaved neck. Her arms were bare above the leather opera gloves, and she turned to American designers to fill her closets. Women turned to the first lady for fashion, the way girls today turn to social media influencers. In 1888, Grover Cleveland lost his re-election bid to Benjamin Harrison, grandson of former President William Henry Harrison. As a point of note, the election was one of only a handful in which the winner did not win the popular vote. Upon leaving the White House, the First Lady made it known to staff not to worry, for they'd be back to the executive mansion in four years. Francis's statement proved true, and in 1892, Grover won back the presidency, making him the only man to win the office in non-consecutive terms. On September 9, 1893, the first couple welcomed their second child, baby Esther, the first and only child to date to be born in the White House. Their first child, Ruth, had been born in 1891 during the first family's presidential intermission. Interestingly, the Curtis Candy Company stated that she was the inspiration for the name of their Baby Ruth candy bar. However, that theory is widely dismissed as Baby Ruth died of diphtheria 17 years before the candy bar debuted. On March 4, 1897, the Clevelands departed the White House for good. They headed to Princeton, New Jersey, where Grover would live out his remaining years. He passed in June of 1908, after years of declining health. Frances would continue to live in Princeton. She was remarried in 1913 to a professor of archaeology at Wells College, her alma mater. The former First Lady would remain active in various causes throughout the remainder of her life. During World War I, she served as president of the National Security League's Speakers Bureau, promoting patriotism through education, 
She was also outspoken about women's suffrage, though not on the side we'd like to think. Like many other women of the day, Frances opposed the idea of women voting on the basis that women were not yet educated enough to vote. On October 29, 1947, Frances Cleveland died while staying in the Baltimore home of her son Richard. She was buried in Princeton Cemetery next to her former husband. For anyone in Buffalo or passing through, Frankie's childhood home still stands. The small, nondescript red brick home is located at 168 Edward Street in Buffalo's Allentown neighborhood, a section of the city, coincidentally, named for Grover Cleveland's uncle, Lewis Allen. In the collection of the Buffalo History Museum is a small oblong white box made by Tiffany's. Inside, one of the 150 individually wrapped small cakes from the 1886 wedding remains. Like so many other remnants of Western New York history, the cake slice, perhaps the last in existence, remains preserved to remind future generations of Buffalo's White House wedding. The Buffalo History Museum receives operating support from Erie County, the City of Buffalo, the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Andrew M. Cuomo and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by M&T Bank and from our donors, members, and friends. Today's story was researched, written, and produced by me, Anthony Greco, with support of our museum staff. We'll be back in two weeks with another tale from Western New York history. So until then, take care. <laughs>